Our scripture reading today is Psalm 139, verses 1 through 12. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Linda. Today is going to, uh, it's going to be a little bit different. Typically, we do expository sermons here at Harvest, and that is that we like to elaborate on one given passage, but occasionally, a topical sermon allows for an opportunity to delve into some truth that is found in Scripture while not explicitly dealt with in one particular text. Today's going to be such an occasion as we look at what it means to be known by God. I shared an uh, illustration recently concerning the difference between expository preaching and topical preaching in that it's like two paintings. One of a scenery featuring the land, the sky, and the moon, and the other featuring the land, the sky, and the sun, in which both paintings are of different landscapes, they're painted by different artists and on different mediums, and yet both are hanging in the same gallery. See, for someone to comment on the painting of the moon concerning the light in it that's illuminating the land and describing the significance of the sun, it would diminish the beauty and the purpose of the moon painting. Furthermore, this would communicate to other onlookers that the significance and meaning is determined by those who look upon the paintings. Rather, when we let each painting stand on its own to convey and the majesty inherent within each, we better appreciate and understand what mattered to the artist. And then from that point, we can observe these paintings in juxtaposition of each other. And as onlookers ourselves, we can learn something of the gallery director as well. So today we're, we're looking at a few different paintings to learn something about God who has hung them all together. It's said that there's a, an ink spot on an interior wall of one of the rooms in Wartburg Castle in Eisenach, Germany. Legend has it that Martin Luther, during an intended uh, benevolent imprisonment, was in great anguish one night over his own sin, 
He envisioned Satan coming into the room and carrying with him a scroll that had on it listed out all of the sins and transgression Martin Luther had ever committed since the day he was born. And as each of these sins was read, Satan, the great accuser, mockingly jested at Luther, forever considering himself to be called into the service of God, let alone escaping himself from hell. Luther's agony and terror, it grew as, and as the long listed was recounted until finally he roused himself and he exclaimed, it's all true, Satan. And many more sins which I have committed in my life which are known to God only, but write this at the bottom of your list. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And then laying hold of his inkstand, Luther hurled it at Satan who fled. And what remains of this encounter is an ink splash on the wall. Each of us has a dark blotch of ink on the wall in our hearts that testify to the mo our moments of self-indulgence, self-righteousness, self-aggrandizing. But what stains deeper than ink is the blood of Christ through his reordering sacrifice in which it is no longer the ink on the wall by which we are known, but by the life of Jesus Christ. Oh, to be known by God. So as we look at what it means to be known by God, let us keep this thought at the forefront of our minds. Our craving to know God is always outmatched by his competence in knowing us. You'll see that there in your bulletin notes. Uh, if you didn't grab a bulletin, I would encourage you to take a picture on the screen or, or, or write this statement down so that it's accessible. Our craving to know God is always outmatched by his competence in knowing us. Also in your notes, if you would write down, jot down this reference, Galatians 4.9. Galatians 4.9. Paul was writing to the church in Galatia and he stated, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. In different words, what Paul was saying is our craving to know God is always outmatched by his competence in knowing us. What throws us off track is when we begin looking at the wrong stain. We begin looking at the ink mark left by our failures, left by our pride, left by our sin and self-righteous justifications. And then we long to, to know God more, thinking that greater knowledge of God is going to give us the tools necessary to clean the ink off the wall. But no amount of scrubbing, no amount of evil elbow grease is going to do the job. My first stint in college, back in 1998, I signed up to uh, do some work on campus and I was working with the janitorial crew. My boss at that one point during the training, he had us in the restroom and, and he told us, okay, you guys are gonna have to leave because I'm about to mix bleach with ammonia. And this was just mere moments after he had already told us to never do that because it creates an invisible, toxic, possibly life-threatening gas. My first thought, 
And this guy's serious about cleaning. <laughs> Crazy stuff. But years in the janitorial, janitorial field, I've, I've come to realize that there's some stains that simply don't come out. And the only way to deal with them is to do something drastic, which often includes making something new. If you're not picking up with the imagery here, let me spell it out. The stains of our own making need the drastic efforts of Christ so that we can become new. And it is only through Jesus' knowing us that we can experience this newness. So there's two realities we're going to look at this morning concerning being known by God. The first is that God sees us for who we are. God sees us for who we are. A student once asked his philosophy teacher, what holds up the world? The teacher replies, it rests on the back of a giant turtle. To which the student then asked, what does that turtle stand on? The professor, not skipping a beat, replied, another giant turtle. And again, the student asked, so what does that turtle stand on? And the answer again was, another giant turtle. The student, now a little frustrated, he asked, and what does that turtle stand on? The professor, breaking through the repetitive reduction, said, son, it's turtles all the way down. J.P. Moreland in his book, Love the Lord Your God with All Your Mind, argues for the existence of our own universe's beginning by saying, if there there were no beginning, then coming to the present moment would require crossing an actual infinite number of events, analogous to counting to zero from negative infinity, and such a cross is impossible. This is because no matter how much time you or I add to our travel log, in order to get further down the line of infinity, the starting point moves further back in the other direction. And this takes place eternally, forever, nonstop. Since our God is eternal, at what point can we recognize him as being different? We would have to look into eternity past to find a point where he is different or was not different in order to assess his present condition. This attempt falters because as we look deeper into the past or further into the future, there are points in God's existence in which we will never know because we will never reach the end of eternity in which we can know it all. So what does this have to do with being known by God? Well, in Psalm 139 that Linda just read, we too can declare like the psalmist, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Our existence is finite, unlike God. And from his vantage point, he has eyes to see all of our moments, all of our events. His thoughts are not truncated by time and space like ours are. From the moment our brain cells begin to process and store sensory information, we have only ever known existence that is tied to a locality, a locality that is seen and known by God. God knows our thoughts. 
God knows our thoughts. He sees them. Even before we think them, God sees us for who we are. Does he see an ink stain on the wall or a blood stain in our hearts? Proverbs 20, 27 reads that the spirit of man is like a lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. God is spirit. See, flesh sees flesh. Our biological eyes see only what they are intended to, but spirit can see spirit. God sees through the illumination of our souls. This knowledge is too wonderful. He knows our thoughts. And he also knows our intentions. Whether good or bad, he knows our intentions. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He knows whether the correction of child is out of concern for the growth of the child or out of concern for how the child's behavior looks on our parenting. He knows whether we're asking a fellow believer what can we pray for because we have a genuine interest in their welfare or we are tantalizing our desire for gossip. He knows whether we serve others to bless them or to be recognized as humble and faithful or better than those that don't serve. He knows whether our insistence on what is right comes from a passion for righteousness or it's out of a personal need for control or a personal need for significance. In the gospel according to Matthew, we can read that Jesus shared, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus said that he will not know these people and he calls them workers of lawlessness how can prophesying in Jesus' name or combating evil forces in Jesus' name and doing mighty works in Jesus' name be works of lawlessness because of intentions? They sought positions of power and influence. They wanted to be recognized as great. They sought celebrity status. They chased after fame and honor and claim it for, for Jesus. I'm guilty of it. Lord, let us win the lottery or that my great long lost uncle will die so I can inherit wealth. It's okay to pray for the death of someone who might or might not exist, right? Because it's just paperwork at that point. Thank God he didn't answer that prayer. Or better put it, the way my brother George did the other day, and said, Jesus intercedes for me in the prayer to make the prayer what I needed to say. Lord, let me suffer in this a little longer so I learn dependence on you and learn to be wiser with my decisions. 
God sees us for who we are. Does he see an ink stain on the wall or a blood stain in our hearts? Proverbs 15, 11 reads, Sheol and Abaddon, that is death and destruction, lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. Even that which we guard from our own realization, our intentions lie open before the Lord. God knows our thoughts. God knows our intentions. And he also knows our direction. The choices we make have an inevitable destination. Sure, there are a myriad of fluctuations and influences that alter our steps, but unless we stop and change course, each direction, each decision is built on top of another. And our choices, our habits, our ways, they lead us. But God knows the direction our habits take us. I've shared before my boyhood dog whose belly dragged the ground and made a trail in the dirt. We're like him. And that when we travel the same path, we will end up in the same place. You know, criticism stings. I've learned over the years to evaluate my evaluative process for weighing criticism for truth it's helpful to see what, what is there and what's genuine, what needs to stick. But if I start to argue and point out the flaws in another's viewpoint concerning that criticism, warranted as it may be, my patterns of defensiveness will eventually blind me from when there is truth to be heard. But God knows this. He knows our direction. Again, we can claim as the psalmist did in Psalm 139, three through five, you search out my path and my laying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Oh, to be known by God. My wife and I, a few years back, we went on a cruise for our 20th wedding anniversary. And I'm sure that this is probably standard for most cruise lines, but we had a room steward. And his job, uh, as he was assigned to us and, and several other guests too, was to make sure that we had everything that we need and, and didn't hinder our travel in any way. But when he saw us in the hallway, he would, he would greet us by name. And he would ask about what activities we're excited about or, or where we're going to go eat dinner at this restaurant or that restaurant. And what seemed like friendly conversation was him learning us to know when he could go in and clean our cabin. This way he could schedule when to do our room service. And he did this for each of the guests under his care. We never saw him enter or leave our room, but when we would come back, from dinner or breakfast, our room would be tidy and there'd be a new towel folded into the shape of an animal. 
He learned our steps and our lying down and was acquainted with our ways. If Habibi can do this, how much more can God do this? And God has much grander designs in store for us than simply a tidy room and a bath towel folded into the shape of an elephant. God knows our paths. And according to his purposes, he guides our steps. He knows the habits and decisions we make that will diminish us. And he knows which habits and decisions will enable us to flourish. Trusting in him we can say that he hems us in behind and before and he lays his hand upon us. God sees us for who we are. He knows our thoughts, our intentions, and our directions. And in all that, does he see an ink stain on the wall or a blood stain in our hearts? There's judgment that comes with seeing. But the good news is that God knowing us changes who we are. You can write that down as our second reality we're looking at regarding being known by God. God knowing us changes who we are. Remember, our craving to know God is always outmatched by his competence in knowing us. The church in Galatia was not the only one to receive such a thought from Paul. He wrote to the Corinthian church something similar regarding knowledge that puffs up. And saying, if anyone thinks he knows something, Paul states God's reply is, you don't know me. I think that sums up the entire book of Job, by the way. (laughs) You got all these... Job and all these other guys arguing about what's right and what's true and what God thinks and God shows up and it's like, you don't know me. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? It's turtles upon turtles, son, all the way down. (laughs) But he says to them, Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, we can read, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. To love God is to be known by him. This is like John's message that we love because he first loved us. And Paul's message to the Romans, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To love God is to be known by him. We cannot love God if God does not know us. He first loved us see knowledge according to the ancient Greeks the the Hellenists and many of the the Gnostics of the first century they're they're primarily concerned intellectual knowledge that's what they believed to know meant to have a a conceptual conceptual knowledge of something Plato held that there were forms and figures of reality and that the forms were what held the truth And so knowledge in and of such forms would then enable one to participate in the eternal, the divine. Judaism, rather, and much of early Christian tradition had a more experiential view of knowledge. To know something was not just of its contemplation of its forms, but in the experience 
of learning through all the senses, the mind included. It is through this Judeo mindset that Paul writes to love God is to be known by God. To love God is to experience God. And experiencing God is transformational. Much of the Old Testament and the New Testament for that matter is concerned with responding to God's grace through faithful obedience. This is much more than simply adhering to a list of rules of morality. Someone can follow a list of rules because they think that if there's any wiggle room they find outside the rules, then it's fair game. And so they can live how they want to live and still, you know, look good doing it. Others might have an affinity for rules because they like the opportunity rules afford them to control others and to make their own life better. Let me explain what this looks like. In high school, we played pickleball in PE. Now, if you don't know what pickleball is, imagine yourself being shrunk on top of a uh, ping pong table. It's basically what it is. <laughs> Good to go now. <laughs> But what we did is in the gym, we took, uh, we took the volleyball nets and they were lowered down to the ground and we set up several, uh, several things there in the gym, down, down the length of the gym and you played crossways. And so you had a wooden paddle that you would play and you could play singles or teams, you know, shrunken ping pong. And uh, there was like a hard wiffle ball that you used and you, you hit it back and forth, right? Now, here's what I need you to understand. I was really good at this game really good but what made me great was how well I knew the rules I would catch any infraction and hold the other team accountable but always to my advantage I was less interested in the fervency of my own accountability makes for a great pickleball player but a lousy friend and an area in my life where I have needed the stain of Christ to cover up the ink splatter of my own self-obsession. See, even while God sees us in our natural inclinations for control, our natural inclination towards violence, manipulation, slander, he first loved us by Christ dying for us to stain our hearts with his grace. To experience God is to be transformed. God knowing us changes who we are. Not only does he love us first, but he also does not forget us. God is unchanging and in ways other than what he has made known to himself, eternally unfathomable. And while we are called to know God in the love of Christ, and he has revealed himself, he is to be remembered. And so that we can take hope in that through the love of Christ, that we are not forgotten. Zach Eswine in his book, Sensing Jesus, Life and Ministry as Human Beings, states this, God is the remembered one, but this does not mean that we are forgotten, not by him, not by a long shot, 
In fact, being remembered by him means that we no longer fear being forgotten by the world. Living humanly within his remembrance is enough. Our time together in the book of Ecclesiastes taught us over and over the eminence of death and that if we were to live to be remembered, we would only be forgotten. We can let that drive and control us to further grab a hold of significance or we can rest in the assurance of God knowing us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians a third time and we can read it in his discourse in 2 Corinthians where he tells them, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. When it comes to the fulfillment of our identity, we are not to look to ourselves or to look to others, but only to Christ. We can certainly hope others understand us and know us to the extent that any human can know another, but our ultimate need of being known is something that only God can do. Anything else is a lie from the devil and a great evil. For it is when we start to find our fulfillment in humanity alone that we begin to be forgotten and become unknown. This means for those of us that hear the accusations of the enemy, you'll never be good enough, that you're not man enough, especially to your wife, that no one understands you, you're alone and without hope, you're ugly and stupid and dull and uninteresting, especially to your husband, you'll never get ahead in life, everyone thinks you're fill in the blank, or worse, no one ever thinks of you. God does. And he certainly doesn't think those things. Or for those of us who think we have everything figured out. And that if others would simply see things the way that we do, not only would their life be better, but all of our lives would be better. God sees you too. And he wants to mold you into the image of his son who is more interested in cross-bearing than truth-telling. We do not have to fight for significance in being right. We can let God be right and dwell in the glory of being known by him. He first loved us. He does not forget us. And he calls us his own. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, 
and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay my life down for the sheep. Oh, to be known by God. To have our ink stain on the wall be covered by the blood stain, his blood stain in our hearts. Paul taught this, his young protege, Timothy, to handle the word of God correctly as some were upsetting the faith. And he said that God, God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There is certainly a protective nature that goes along with ownership it's mine that's mine you cannot have it you'll have to come through me to get it this is exactly what I hear when I hear Jesus's words saying that he's the door and the good shepherd when addressing the wolf that's coming to kill and destroy said over my dead unresurrected body you can (laughs) it feels good to think God as will fight for us does it not but I think we need to be cautious with this we can get sideways on who we consider the enemy to be and what it is that's exactly seeking to destroy us flesh sees flesh but spirit sees spirit We can start to think that it's the physical realities in front of us that are assaulting the church, our faith, the way of Christ, but often it's the unseen which wreaks havoc on our minds and our hearts and in our souls that's attempting to destroy us. S. Wine again has something helpful to thoughts regarding this. He says, it's no wonder That whereas Paul cautions men about provoking others to anger, he cautions women about the tendency to gossip, 1 Timothy 5.13. For men, the desire for respect, Ephesians 5.33, gets tangled up, delayed, and confused, and fists are used to take it. For women, the desire to be wanted means she'll use anything at her disposal to wrestle it from another, not just a bit of skin, but a bit of news, And suddenly she is wanted. Tell us what you know, they say. And at least for a moment, she's desired. But thirsty for water, she finds none to satisfy until she is seen by Jesus and known and cherished. Jesus' fight with these competing hearts that seek to destroy us. He lays down his life so that we can live beyond these basic instincts. He is drawn near to get to know us. God sees us for who we are. God knowing us changes who we are. Our craving to know God is always outmatched by his competence in knowing us. 
Let us return again to Psalm 139 and hear these words of life. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. But where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and all the light about me is night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The light is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are a God of knowing that there is nothing beyond your sight, there is nothing beyond your power, there is nothing that exists outside of what you allow, what you can make happen. We utter the the words of our Lord that all things are possible with you. We thank you that you are a God of knowing that has come to give us an opportunity to be known by you, to experience you. to go through what it is to be taken from something that is broken and beyond repair to something that is holy. And we praise you for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for this time, even in this season that we are now in, that you entered into Jerusalem knowing the outcome, knowing where you were heading, knowing what path you were on. It was a path of redemption. Not one that you needed, but one we did. Thank you for taking the ink stains in our lives, covering it with your blood through your sacrifice and that you are making us new. We pray, Holy Spirit, 
and that you continue to make us new each day. You draw us closer unto you. You take the power of your word, the power of, of, of Christ's sacrifice, and you continue to refine us, continue to make us more like Christ, that our humanity is now made anew to be like him, a new kind of human. Help us to let go of the things in this world that seek to bind us and hold us. And that our freedom in you to to live as you've designed us, to live as you have created us, Thank you for knowing us. And it is in the matchless name of Christ that this church, that your church prays, Lord Jesus, amen.